0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 56th of The COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, the first day of hurricane season, we talk about cascading disasters with Aaron Clark Ginsburg from RAND and Miriam Belvidia of Imagine Waterworks. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear the COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on podbean.com or anywhere that you hear podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or @covidcalls. Please do help me spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics. Tomorrow, we'll start the first of five sessions that I'm doing in tandem with the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University in Philadelphia. And I'm really excited to start these. We're going to have these once a week throughout June. And the, for the first of these, tomorrow, we're going to talk about biodiversity and the pandemic with Mary Angelus Arce, Jason Wexstein, and Richard McCourt of the Academy of Natural Sciences. So please do join me for those. And I'd like to remind folks that on Friday, I had a really um, really in-depth and, to me, really eye-opening discussion about COVID-19 in the context of the violence in Minneapolis and the violence around the United States. And I talked with Rashawn Ray and Gonzalo Vazicalupe. So if you missed that discussion on Friday, I would encourage you to go back and and check that out. As of today, June 1st, 2020, there are 6,229,408 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 5,871,347,000 cases reported Friday. 1,799,747 of those are in the United States, up from 1,731,035 on Friday. There are now a total of 104,702 deaths reported in the United States, up from 102,323 deaths reported on Friday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story every day, and I'd like to continue that now. Theodore Gaffney, who photographed the Freedom Riders as they protested segregation, dies of COVID-19 complications This was written by Carr and published on CNN.com, April 21st, 2020. In his 92 years, Theodore Gaffney witnessed some of the most consequential moments in history. He served in the United States Army during World War II. One of the first black photographers in the White House, he took photos of U.S. Presidents Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, as well as Queen Elizabeth II. But he was perhaps best known for an assignment he undertook for Jet Magazine in 1961, documenting the Freedom Riders as they journeyed to the Deep South to challenge racial segregation. On Easter Sunday, the legendary photographer died of complications from COVID-19. We kept saying that he survived World War II, survived the struggle of civil rights. He survived a heart attack, his wife Maria Santos Gaffney said. We were praying that he would survive this too, but his body could not handle the severity of the virus infection. In the spring of 1961, then 33-year-old Gaffney was tasked with accompanying journalist Simeon Booker on the first Freedom Rides, in which black and white cities in the deep south, in which they went to black and white cities in the deep south to protest, unsegregated buses to protest segregated buses and stations. My job on the Freedom Ride was to document what happened when blacks and whites sit together on the bus in the front, go to the counters in the bus terminals, drink out of the black or white fountain, go to the colored restrooms and water fountains, and see what happened when they used those facilities, Gaffney said in an interview for the Freedom Riders interview collection, footage of which was used in the PBS documentary Freedom Riders. On May the 4th, 1961, a group of activists, along with Booker and Gaffney, boarded a Greyhound bus from Washington, D.C., with the goal of reaching New Orleans. Gaffney told PBS interviewer Stanley Nelson that he kept his distance from the Freedom Riders during the trip, wary of the risks that came with carrying a camera. I didn't want anybody to know I was a photographer either, Gaffney said in the interview. That was more dangerous than being a rider because they don't want documentation of things that happened, whether you're black or a white photographer. He was afraid that the further south he traveled, he said, if people found out he had a camera, he might not come back, and his fears were nearly realized. From Atlanta, the riders split off into two groups as they boarded buses for Anniston, Alabama. Some riders got on a Greyhound, while the others, Gaffney among them, hopped on a Trailways bus that left an hour later. White protesters surrounded the first bus as it arrived in Anniston, attacking the windows and tires and eventually set it on fire. The Freedom Riders were forced to flee into the mob. Meanwhile, as the bus Gaffney was on departed from Atlanta, a group of white men who had boarded began beating the Freedom Riders, Gaffney said in his interview for the Freedom Riders interview collection. As that bus reached the terminal in Birmingham, Alabama, the violence continued. When the bus pulled up, there was a mob. Looked like a thousand people. They had iron pipes, Gaffney said in the PBS documentary. The mob began beating the Freedom Riders, Gaffney said in interview footage. Police would not arrive until 10 minutes later. With his camera under his coat, Gaffney exited the bus and took refuge in a waiting area in the bus station. Ultimately, he walked away unharmed. The violence in Anniston and Birmingham made headlines. The Freedom Riders tried to continue their journey the next day, but found that no bus driver would agree to transport them. Eventually, Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy arranged for the group to fly from Birmingham to New Orleans, which came as a relief for Gaffney. I'd never flown before, but it felt good when that plane got off the runway, he said in the documentary. I'd rather take a chance on getting killed in a plane crash than to get beat to death by hoodlums with iron pipes. Though Gaffney said in the PBS interview that he didn't consider himself to be an activist, his cousin Patricia Johnson said his career was largely informed by his family history, His great-grandparents had been enslaved on a plantation in South Carolina, and his grandparents were sharecroppers in the town of Gaffney," Johnson told CNN. In the 1920s, Gaffney's parents migrated from South Carolina to Washington, D.C. for better opportunities. Gaffney was born in 1927. In 1945, Gaffney enlisted in the Army. Johnson said he would tell his cousins stories about the segregation he experienced during his service. He was also close to his uncle, Johnson's father, who she said had once faced a lynch mob in Montgomery, Alabama. Those experiences were part of why he felt compelled to document the civil rights struggle of the 1960s, according to Johnson. Gaffney was a legendary figure in the family, Johnson said. Despite his achievements though, his family members said he was always learning and encouraging others to do the same. Hey, I'd like to turn to our discussion for today and let me introduce our guests. My first guest is Miriam Belglitya. She has over 10 years of experience in resilience planning, hazard mitigation, floodplain management, and disaster recovery. In 2012, she co-founded WaterWorks, a grassroots group focused on equitable disaster management. In 2019, she served as a co-founder in shifting WaterWorks to Imagine WaterWorks. Recognizing the importance of creativity and local leadership in addressing climate justice, she currently works for Arcadis on urban and coastal resilience projects nationwide, and volunteers her time in support of Imagine Waterworks. Miriam serves as an administrator for the 2,400-person New Orleans Mutual Aid Response Network, which was started during the COVID-19 pandemic and is currently transitioning to address the 2020 hurricane season. My second guest is Aaron Clark Ginsberg. Aaron is a social scientist at the RAND Corporation, focused on improving the lives and resilience of communities. His published research is about hazard management, especially where it can affect humans and their communities. Clark Ginsburg's continuing research focuses on community resilience and disaster risk reduction, critical infrastructure, cybersecurity, risk governance, and disasters in cities. Before joining Rand, Aaron worked as disaster risk reduction officer for the international NGO Concern Worldwide, where he went to 10 countries to document and synthesize concerns community-based disaster risk reduction work. I'd like to welcome you both, Aaron and Miriam, to COVID calls. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Scott.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: So let me start the way I usually do, which is to just find out uh, where people are calling in from and how you're doing. So Miriam, can I start with you? Where are you and what's the situation like there?
2: Sure, so yeah, thank you so much for having us. I am based in New Orleans, Louisiana. So uh, right now we are transitioning into hurricane season, um, which brings its own sort of level of stress and preparation, um, and we're obviously doing that in not only the the ongoing pandemic, but also against the backdrop of the police brutality and the protests that we're seeing nationwide. Um, so there's a lot, a lot going on, um, but overall, doing pretty well and just trying to to stay focused on on the work that we have ahead of us.
0: Are you working? From home still?
2: I am. Yeah, we have been working from home, I guess, for the last two and a half months, and we'll be doing so for the foreseeable future.
0: Okay. And Aaron, what about you? Where are you calling from, and what's it looking like there?
1: Well, I'm I'm, I'm calling from Portland, Oregon. There's there's no hurricanes here, which is, I mean, I, I guess that's a plus. Um, <laughs> there has been, you know, police tear gassing, tear gassing protesters, beating protesters, and um, you know, coronavirus, um, it's, it's, yeah, it feels like it's, it's, it's a, it's a whole lot to kind of, to kind of take in. I mean, fortunately, you know, we've, we've got, we just moved from DC, um, and we're close to my family and we've got a, you know, we've got a nice place to stay in and we're healthy and we're both working remote and I mean, everything is fine, um, I guess personally, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it really, it really feels like the past few days have been, um, something else.
0: Yeah, I hear you. Miriam, are you uh, in New New Orleans there? Is there a curfew or some sort of uh, police enforcement going on right now in terms of where people can be and when?
2: There is not. So there were protests over the weekend and there's a lot of actions that are continuing throughout the week. Um, At the protests, uh, at least that I was a part of on Saturday, um, you know, things were were. Relatively peaceful. Um, the the police did not engage with protests and did not escalate things. So I think, uh, unlike what we're seeing in, in other cities around the country, um, it has been relatively quiet. Um, yeah, but that said, you know, we're we're obviously uh, seeing how quickly things can can change and can escalate. Um, so yeah, for now. It is quiet, but uh, but we'll see how things yeah. go.
0: Philadelphia is on uh, curfew again tonight. Mm-hmm. We've been getting emails from uh, security and, and even from the president of the university. I teach at Drexel University. Um, just keeping everybody updated. But, um, you know, the concept of, of a curfew was strange enough a few months ago. Uh, and now to see a curfew from, uh, you know, protests and violence... Related to the murder, you know, um, combined with this, it's just as as you said, Aaron. It's just a lot to, to take in all at once. And and I'm at home. Yeah, Are you on a curfew there?
1: Yeah, we've got a, we've got an eight p.m. Um, the there there were there were, there have been protests, you know, every, every day and every night. And um, I I skipped out on the curfew. I was I was two minutes late coming home last night because there were, I I thought there were protests coming down, coming down the street. Um, and yeah, I mean, we had, we had like 10,000 people, um, out breaking curfew and, you know, standing in front of the justice center, um, (laughs) reacting to The police violence of the past few days, basically, you know, I mean, it was this was this was the biggest the biggest night was yesterday um, because of the stuff that had happened over the past few days. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, we've got another we've got another eight o'clock.
0: So the when we first started talking about doing this session, we were and and what we will talk about today, the conjunction of disasters, the pandemic and the the planning for uh, hurricane season. And now we have, but it's impossible to disentangle those from this situation that we find ourselves in now with the with the violence. So that will be part of our conversation today, certainly. But I'm going to start, Miriam, with you. If you wouldn't mind, just tell us a little of your own sort of professional background and, and pathway, and tell us what Imagine Water Works does.
2: Sure. So... Um... I, as I mentioned, I'm I'm based in New Orleans and I've been here for the last decade, um, over a decade now. I currently work for Arcadis, which is an international engineering and design firm, but I volunteer my time with Imagine Waterworks, um, which I co-founded in 2012. And we're really focused on trying to reimagine the future and looking at things through these intersections of art, science, and connection. So while our focus areas are mainly on water management, climate justice and disaster readiness, um, you know, we see things really through an intersectional lens. And so that means prioritizing the most vulnerable in both natural and man-made disasters. Um, and most of our work sort of falls under three broad strategies. We provide direct resources um, for folks. So, Things like um, a hurricane guide and um, different sort of um, resources related to water management. We provide space for folks to connect with each other. Um, And I'll talk a little bit more about our mutual aid group. And then lastly, we provide space for folks to explore and and sort of imagine what a different future could look like. So, you know, in the same way that... um, Right now, the the systems of government, the sort of systems that we all are have become accustomed to were sort of the imaginings of thinkers, you know, three, four hundred years ago. Um, we want to think about what it means to uh, reimagine systems that really work for all people um, in the future. And what does it look like to give space for that kind of uh, future thinking, and um, what does it mean to give a platform to to folks so that it's not just, you know, the current systems that we've inherited that clearly are, um, well, one could say are functioning as designed to, but are clearly not working for the majority of, of folks in America. Um, so that's sort of the work that we are focused on doing. Now, uh, my sort of professional background and, and education background, I have Um, master's in public administration. I used to work for the city of New Orleans um, post-Katrina doing hazard mitigation work. Um, I received a Fulbright fellowship to do some research on water management in the Netherlands. And so that really combined with the education that I've gotten just living in New Orleans and knowing New Orleanians um, has really informed my approach to disaster management. But I think that sort of personally, what was interesting to me was, you know, I'd spent a lot of time looking at sort of water management and and disasters in a larger sense. But um, I I started to feel like if we were only looking at things like green infrastructure, then uh, and we weren't focusing on, you know, the climate crisis. We were really quite literally having, you know, <laughs> drops drops in the bucket compared to the the scope of the issue. Um, And so that prompted us to sort of rethink our approach to the work and what we were going to be focused on and and moving more into the space of focusing on climate justice work. Um, The second part of sort of what um, brought forth the the change last year is really sort of thinking about what it means for people with privilege to uh, step aside and let folks let others lead. So I am a transplant to New Orleans, you know, I moved to the city in uh, 2008, 2009. And, you know, I'm an Arab American woman, but I have a lot of privilege that comes with being white passing. And what we really thought about doing our work is that if you're going to do it well, it's really critical that the folks that are most impacted have a seat at the table and have positions of leadership. Um, and so that also meant restructuring our leadership. Uh, and so in stepping aside and making room for others to join our team and to, to bring on other co-founders, we changed not only the representation within our organization, but then also that brings a whole wealth of experience and expertise. Um, so we're now, we have four co-founders, um, we have, uh, two, two women of color, Um, Our director is a trans person who is a native New Orleanian, um, and they bring, you know, different lenses to this work that um, certainly broadens my understanding of the impacts of disaster and um, how we need to be thinking about these issues moving forward. So that was sort of also part of the, the decision making for how we transitioned.
0: Thank you for, for really walking us through that because, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's amazing to me to, to think that there was a time in which you could do floodplain management or you know, city planning more generally. And these issues you've been talking about already around climate justice or around social justice, community planning, there might have been some discussion of them. I mean, around the time of Katrina, but they were always treated as sort of add-ons or extras. Mm-hmm. You know, and they've moved to the core I think and and I want to get to that I'm going to talk about the implications of that for emergency management too here in just a second Aaron I want to I want to come to you you've been you're characteristically prolific um, <laughs> but you've been very prolific lately and I want to actually just read a little bit from this great Fox piece that you published back in May you had a whole group of co-authors there um, let me just read you said in this piece, Think about how when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans in 2005, around 20,000 people took refuge in the Superdome Stadium. By their very nature, hurricanes force people to gather close together in shelters, at treatment locations and during evacuations, at much higher numbers and densities than the CDC recommends for countering a COVID-19 outbreak. The Atlantic hurricane season, you remind us, starts on January 1st, June, sorry, June 1st, and every state and territory on the Atlantic coast, is vulnerable. You co-authored this with the former FEMA uh, administrator Craig Fugate. So, um, yeah, thank you for terrifying me with that with that piece and drawing that that indelible image back to all of our minds about the Superdome. So, what kind of things should we be thinking about here? How? What kind of things have planners got in mind when they imagined the worst pandemic to hit America since the nineteen sixties combined with what is already, I think, predicted to be at least an average, if not above average hurricane season.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit of, it's, it's kind of like imagining the unimaginable, right? You have, you know, what, what could be some, some pretty terrible natural hazards coupled with this, this strong pandemic. And so I, I've been, I've been working on, I guess, a, a series on sort of, you know, the the concurrent disaster of Coronavirus meets natural hazard. Um, so I've I've I have that that piece in in, in box on hurricanes. Um, another piece on coronavirus and wildfires, and that was that was written with, with um, a former Cal Fire chief, actually uh, David Shu, who I mean he he knows everything about fires, and he's 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 a great co-author. Um, and then I'm I'm working on another piece with. Um, PJM, which which is a an RTO. They're in the utility space. Um, and looking at how utilities are preparing for a coronavirus and hurricane situation. Um, so I guess, you know, kind of uh, I've been thinking about what are what are these sort of common threads and how do you you know, what 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 sort of draws them all together? Um, and I think the way that I've started to think about it is, you have you know the system, and then you have the people, um, and you know the system, the response system, the sort of resilient system, these official structures, um, to varying degrees, are, are are moving into action and you know ad- adapting um, to try and try and figure things out. Um, I mean, I think the utilities the utility space. Is and, and the wildfire space, um, you know, they're 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 both particularly strong in figuring this stuff out. Um, they have sort of, you know, it's their job. They're it's it's cultures of reliability, um, strong sort of emphasis on, you know, let's let's not kill people in the in the wildfire space. Let's let's you know keep our staff safe and um, you know put out wildfires effectively. Um, and then in the utility space, it's you know we need to keep the lights on. Um, so in, in the utility space, um, you know, you are seeing and, and you've seen these utilities kind of spring to action, um, uh, leveraging the networks that they already kind of kind of work with and are connected with and you know have engaged with for, for years um, when it comes to establishing sort of reliability principles. Um, you know, coming together and and starting to think through what are these implications, um, let's start coming up with plans. Um so PJM, this, this RTO, which is responsible for kind of transmission within, you know, a large region, it, it coordinates transmission entities, generation entities, and then um, distribution entities. Um, PJM has done a couple of things. Um, they've... Uh, can, the, these they have control centers that are kind of at the heart of the electric grid. Uh, these these centers are responsible for you know they, they they use these things to direct the flow of of, of energy. Um, they're critical. So if if one of them fails and you only have one, um, that entire system kind of kind of shuts down. Um, they they already have two. They've turned a third into that, that was formerly for training, Um, they've, they've gotten that up and running and it's now a third control center. Um, so, you know, that allows for, for greater social distancing, um, and additional redundancy if, if, you know, one of them is compromised. Um, you know, they've, the staff that run these things are highly specialized. It takes years of training, um, to, to, to become a control room operator. So they've, they've shifted staff length. From you know eight-hour shifts to twelve-hour shifts to um, you know reduce the threat of contagion in handover. Um, you know they've they've limited any staff who aren't control room staff from from being in the control room. They're going into remote practices. They've they've revised their response plans. Um, they've started to think through supply chain issues because you know the supply chains for these these equipment they're global um, and becoming compromised because of coronavirus uh, because, you know, the manufacturing systems are um, getting a little bit compromised and staff is, is harder to come by. So, so, so there's a lot going on um, in that space. Um, similarly for wildfires and, and and hurricanes, you know, you have these emergency managers who are, who are, who are figuring out their systems and modifying them, um, you know, to, to facilitate kind of a more effective response. Um, so that's the system side, right? That's that's sort of the official side, and things are things seem like they're humming. And I mean, I guess we'll see how effective they are um, come wildfire season and come hurricane season. But you know, my 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 hunch is that uh, these these modifications will help a bit at least. Um, and if if they don't you know the the system system engineers will react to that and and you know figure out and and modify it until they do um i mean the human side is totally different right it's it's you know it's dependent on a people and a population who you know may or may not be highly vulnerable um who may or may not have assets and resources um, who may or may not be connected with the official response architecture um <sighs> You know, and, and and figuring out how to, I guess, quote, unquote, modify that system um, and, and and support people, it, it's a lot harder. Um, so, you know, I mean, FEMA recommends a 72-hour kit for, for you know, for emergencies. And <laughs> we're kind of smirking here and it's, you know, it shifted to two weeks. And but, you know, there, there's questions of, OK, if, if, if you're broke and you're poor, how do you afford that 72-hour kit? Um, and then, you know, you add like the pandemic 72 hour kit. And that's, that's, that's an additional resource. Um, how do you message to people who are hard to reach and hard to message and maybe rightly distrustful of, you know, these these official authorities? Um, if you have to evacuate, you know, how do you evacuate people who like might be too poor and may, may not have a vehicle? Um, you know, usually it's, it's, it's busing, but that, how how do you maintain social distancing when you bus um shelters um you know i mean it's again it's it's you know it's poor and vulnerable that end up staying in these shelters usually if you have money, you can get a hotel room you can get you know if if you have social connections you can stay with 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 your your friends and your family um yeah i mean so so it's kind of a story of two different systems the the, the, the official and then, and then this, this human one. And, um, you know, I guess my concern is more on the, um, you know, that, 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 that sort of social and, and human system.
0: What do you expect that, that, um, municipal emergency management offices now or state offices are literally coming up with plans or maybe they've been doing this since March, um, to deal with low density, evacuation shelter and low density cooling center and the many other things that we know are going to come up between June and October around the country, or it's, they're already over, they're already maxed and they're going to, they're going to have to just respond however they can respond in the, in the moment. I mean, I had Trisha Wachtendorf on and we talked about improvisation and the many surprises that can come up and the many resiliencies that are not anticipated. Uh, but I don't think, Particularly in big cities, emergency management offices have the luxury of not planning. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think I think it's their job to think about the terrible and make it worse, and then plan for that. Um, <laughs> you know, so so yeah, I, 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 I'm sure they are planning, and um, you know, I'm sure they they, I mean, I bet I bet many of them already had plans for for some of this stuff. Um, you know, following. Following 9/11 there were a series of sort of health health incidents that prompted um, incident management planning processes to occur um, I, I know you know in the utility space for instance there there, there were these plans that were developed uh, in response to not a pandemic but um, other other health health outbreaks Um but there's a question of whether these plans are, you know, I mean, being used and um, how, how useful they are and whether they're paper plans or actual plans, right? I mean, it's it's the classic idea of are these plans reality or are they fantasy documents? Um, and, you know, I mean, the the, the old ones most likely were, were fantasy documents. These ones that folks are working on, um, you know, maybe, maybe if there's resources there.
0: people that you're listening to COVID Calls, and we're talking to Aaron Clark Ginsburg and Miriam Belvidia today about cascading disasters and planning and vulnerable populations. And Miriam, I'd like to turn to you on that. Um, Let's let's stay with COVID-19 here for a minute. What kind of vulnerabilities are you concerned about? Are you seeing emerging in this moment how are people reacting creatively? I mean, I think being attentive to that helps us think through some of these even worse scenarios—the one that's Aaron, the ones that Aaron is sort of showing us. What's on your mind when you think about COVID nineteen and vulnerable populations?
2: Yeah, well, there's a number of things. So, just in response to some of the things that Aaron brought up, um, you know, the importance of redundancy uh, in our socio-technical systems and those social and technical systems is, is crucial. Um, and, you know, I think that there's a few examples here in terms of like in New Orleans, um, when it comes to our vulnerabilities. So, and and our social vulnerability. So, you know, as we've seen with COVID, the importance of frontline workers, the importance of folks that, you know, before the pandemic may not have been seen as essential, um, turns out certainly are. Um, and, you know, I, I think about that sometimes when it comes to also our technical systems. Right. So who's maintaining those, um, you know, for the Surgeon water board uh, in New Orleans, you have many folks that are employed um, locally that we depend on to make sure that our drainage system is operating um, and that, you know, things are. Uh, as ready for hurricane season as they can be. Um, We also see things like um, we have right now sanitation workers in New Orleans that are on strike because uh, they are demanding hazard pay, rightfully so. Um, They are crucial all the time. And in a pandemic, they're faced with even more, um, you know, potential exposure. So uh, when we think about these sort of things that we take for granted in terms of our, you know, lifelines, our, our critical services, um, thinking about who are the people that keep those things going. Um, I think that, you know, COVID-19 has certainly exposed a lot of that and and the vulnerability there. Um, the other piece that I want to think about is the importance of trust. So Aaron mentioned, you know, the fact that, you know, when you're trying to get messaging out about, whether it's hurricane season or COVID, the importance of that coming from trusted source and that vulnerable populations with good reason um, may not trust local government officials, you know, state, federal officials. Um, One thing that I, you know, positive example that I would point to is actually the city of New Orleans just released their sort of, uh, it's the start of hurricane season, time to be prepared video. Um, And they did it really well. This is the first time that I've seen them They not only had, you know, the mayor and and the head of the city council and the council representatives in this video, but they also had local celebrities who are trusted voices within communities, right? So they had, um, you know, Big Frida, who's a a very well-known nationally uh, uh, artist and and performer. Um, You know, she was in, in this video. And I think that, you know, it's important that local officials... Know who the trusted voices are, and work with those folks to get what are life-saving messages out there. Um, And you know, another point that sort of was brought up that I think that we need to think about is that, like, as local governments and states are are making these moves to address concurrent disasters, is also the loss of revenue. I mean, I know that many cities are um, facing huge budget shortfalls. Uh, in New Orleans, a city that is very much dependent on uh, tourism industry and, you know, oil and gas in, in our state, you know, they're seeing huge budget shortfalls at a time when these government services are especially necessary. So um, those are just all of the, the sort of, you know, other things to be thinking about um, when we're considering the impacts of not only COVID-19, but also potential for concurrent disasters Um, When it comes to vulnerable populations, you know, we are seeing that um, it's really important when we're thinking about disasters to to be intersectional in our approaches, right? So um, we've done a lot, or we've done a lot sort of historically to prepare for this, um, and I think that the thinking about sort of who are the folks that are gonna be most impacted by a disaster and making sure that you have tailored information, that again, you have trusted folks who can bring that information back to communities. That's really the crucial part in this. Um, You know, One of the examples that I can point to from our resources is that we created a queer and trans guide to hurricane season that we're now in the process of updating for hurricanes plus COVID. And so, you know, the reason that we did that is obviously there's a lot of sort of resources out there that, you know, Aaron mentioned things from FEMA about like the guidance of how much gallon of water to have per person, things like that, but when you think about sort of what are the special needs of different populations, right? Like, so in the queer and trans community, you want to be thinking about like how are folks going to um, be treated at shelters? What kind of identification is necessary? If that doesn't match their birth name, are they going to run into issues? Um, Thinking about like what kinds of medications might be necessary. Um, And then also, I mean, thinking about the fact that in New Orleans, we have a large transplant community that is not experienced with, Going through hurricanes, Um, may not have access to transportation, may not have family members that are welcoming if they needed to evacuate someplace. So, those are all the sort of key pieces that we're trying to think through. And, you know, when that comes to updating things for hurricane season plus COVID, we're thinking through, you know, what are the pieces that we need to um, prepare for? So, if I uh, have been quarantining, but my usual evacuation spot is with elderly parents, then, you know, is that going to be an issue if I'm going to potentially be exposing them? Um, if we're going to be thinking about our hurricane packing list, you know, making sure obviously that there are masks and sanitizer and things like that included, but, um, just trying to be really mindful of the different scenarios in which, um, we're going to need to, yes, be creative, and then also be, be providing trusted information to folks um, that is as useful as possible.
0: So Aaron, I want to just to pick up on that. I mean, there's so many important points Miriam was just just making. I Think about the variability of human experience in disaster. Yeah. I mean, and the idea that there's some sort of standard preparation um, is deeply problematic and yet, uh, so much empathy for what planners try to go through, you know, and there's this conflict. there. There's this tension between, are we planning ultimately for the large number of people or are we really planning? We're sort of letting the large number of people and assuming if they've got resources, they are mostly going to find a way they're going to rely on the networks that they rely on. And that we really should be doing this emergency planning, this vulnerability planning for the, For those who can't plan so it's actually planning for a small number i i think about this all the time i don't know how to resolve that tension how did how do you think about that you know i mean you studied emergency management around the world many different settings are these plans for the many or they should they be the plans for the few who need who need the most yeah Uh, solve that for us Yeah, right
1: (laughs) I, I wish I could just give the easy technocratic answer, but it seems like it's a you know it's 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 a it's a political and a social decision um sure it is. one of the uh, it, it it does remind me of you know when i when I worked for concern worldwide, and i mean their mission is i mean it's 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 focused on the poorest of the poor and the most extreme and vulnerable countries um so that type of work um you know, I mean, concern is committed to it and really trying and in, to interact and engage with these groups and going out of its way to do so. Um, but it's 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 incredibly challenging. And then there's even these debates within the organization of of, you know, what its scope should be and and how it should go about doing this. Um, you know, I mean, for instance, say you're doing an intervention in. Uh, I don't know, the highlands of Ethiopia in a rural and remote place, you know, and it takes two days from the capital and then you have to walk for, you know, six hours, um, to get, to get to a village. Um, you know, the, the, the you, you could, you could try and target that village. Um, and you know, that, that may be the area with the highest need. Um, or, you know, you, you could, you could target 10 villages that are, still two days from the Capitol, but, you know, not, not a six hour walk, um, in, in, into the hills. And I mean, there is, there is this question of, of how you allocate those, those sorts of limited resources. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't really know the answer, but, um, I, I do think, you know, one of the challenges that, that, that organization faced and that a lot of organizations face is that, you know, they aren't they aren't graded on whether they're reaching those that have the greatest needs. Um, and they don't get the funding based on that. They get the funding and they're graded based on who they reach and how many people they reach. Um, so it's very easy to um, you know get funding and just shovel it out, you know right across the road, um, and you won't actually be reaching the population with the biggest need. It's a lot harder to make that argument of, we need an intervention that's twice as much, three times as much because, you know, this group has higher needs and they're harder to get to. Mm-hmm.
0: So just thinking a bit more about this, this, this issue of boundaries that get drawn. I mean, this has been on my mind a lot and the, the framing of the concern of, of hurricane season coming. You know, my thought about that is how arbitrary the, the temporal lines often are. are. And Mary, I going to ask you about this because you're in New Orleans. Um, and I've heard people say it doesn't feel like Hurricane Katrina is over yet, and I've been doing research in in Port Arthur, Texas, where it's clear that Hurricane Harvey isn't over yet. There's still homes with blue tarps on the roofs. So it wasn't that we need, it isn't, I don't think, that we need to wait and see what happens when we have COVID-19 and the hurricane. We can already see what that looks like, because it's 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 ongoing. These are communities that are dealing with covid 19 and still dealing with hurricanes that have happened but I, I guess we don't usually f- frame it that way we're always sort of looking for that next disaster that's coming and somehow drawing some limits distancing ourselves between between the old ones I I don't know there's not a good question in there for you but maybe just some some thinking some things on my mind about how we maybe arbitrarily decide when a disaster is over and when things have recovered I mean how do you approach that? in your work?
2: Yeah. I mean, that is the excellent question. (laughs) Um, I think that, yes, you know, in emergency management as a discipline, we tend to think of things in sort of phases, right? So you have mitigation, you have preparedness, you have response and recovery, and it's sort of, you know, the cycle, right? Um, Now, I don't think that we're necessarily realistic about the fact that you will have, like, (laughs) Mitigation happening as recovery happens, right? These things overlap and recovery is uneven. Um, It is the folks that are going to be most impacted are going to have a much longer recovery time and our systems are not designed to help them. Um, There is a lot of talk whenever there is a disaster about sort of making folks whole um, but then the reality is that, you know, our, our grants and our, our systems of getting aid to people are not actually designed to make people whole after a disaster. Right. Um, and, you know, when you couple that with racism, when you couple that with, um, you know, existing systemic inequities, then you're going to have very uneven recoveries and um, that look very different even within the same city, right? So in New Orleans, right, we are now coming up on 15 years after Katrina and I live in the Lower Ninth Ward and it looks much different in terms of the recovery here, which uh, has been very patchy, uh, to say the least, um, compared to, you know, other parts of the city that had more resources before the storm. So I think that just sort of acknowledging in disaster management, we talk a lot about sort of breaking the cycle of, you know, disasters. And, and that's what a lot of mitigation is supposed to do, right? It's supposed to um, try to get out of the cycle that we have of, you know, disaster repair and then another disaster comes and, and we um, try to recover from that. Now, I, I think that as a field, though, unless we are really willing to grapple with these very difficult questions around justice, around equity, that we're not going to actually make much headway when it comes to disaster management. Um, that in order to actually manage disasters, you have to look at what the existing, sort of the pre existing conditions are within a society. And if you have one in which there's, you know, uh, disparity, many disparities, Then you're going to have differences in terms of the recovery. And those folks that are most vulnerable are going to be most impacted. And I think that back to this question of sort of like, do you prepare for the many or the few? You know, I would argue that if you plan for the few, plan for those folks that are most vulnerable, then also planning. If you are creating a world in which the men are also safe, because the world in which those folks are left behind cannot create a safer, more just world, I think that ultimately we should be striving for.
0: That I mean, that's a really profound statement, Aaron. I'd like to get your your reaction to that, and and just put one additional thing on top of that. is there a space for emergency managers and disaster planners to be planning with George Floyd's murder in the front of their mind? I mean, is, is this, I mean, is social injustice, racial injustice, don't, doesn't that have to be part of the discussion now? Or can we continue to make that sort of a separate, that's, that's for somebody else, that's not for Office of Emergency Management. Yeah. I've given you all of the impossible questions. <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: No, these are good. It's, it's,
0: it's what we're talking about now. I mean, how can we not have yeah. these conversations now?
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's a big fat yes, right? Like you need. How how can you how can you not have these conversations, and how can you not plan um, and and you know mitigate, respond, recover, whatever um, by in 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 a way that separates you know, one social injustice, um, from another social injustice that, you know, in, 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 in reality, they're all fairly linked. Um, I mean, I think, you know, so, so some of these ideas you can, you can, there is decent literature and research out there that, that could be kind of drawn to help conceptualize some of this stuff. Um, so i'm thinking specifically about the idea of allostatic load um and allostatic load i mean it's 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 a it's a term that's been around a concept that's been around for a while um in the health the health
0: field uh but it's it's i had to look it up after yeah you mentioned it to me uh and so for people listening uh, don't feel bad allostatic a l l o s t a t i c allostatic load
1: and I I, so I keep I think going. It's I, a
0: great concept and one that I think people should be aware of if they're not. Yeah. And I
1: I I I was doing a project on the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, and that's when I um came across it. But it it gets at a lot of this it it, it helps you understand, I think, some of the um you know systemic issues and how a disaster never really ends and how it intertwines with with all of these these other other processes. So allostatic load, it basically refers to the price that the body pays um, for conditions of, of, of stress, for being under stress for a repeated period of time. Um, so it's you know think of it kind of as the as as, as the straw that broke the camel's back, right? Um, you know, you may be exposed to a certain trauma, um, uh, you know, violence. Um, some some there there is some emerging work that, that's talking about natural hazards. Um, and you know that'll result in things like, well, um, you know me- mental mental health challenges, um, you know, depression, um, but also physical health. So um, you know, high blood pressure. Um, there have been studies that have linked you know, the experience of earthquakes to heart attacks far, far down the line. Um, and you know, I mean there, it's, it, it's it's also an idea that's kind of expanding to the community sphere. So um, you know thinking about how trauma can be, passed down within communities over the course of of, of generations. Um, so um, something like Katrina, you know, that could contribute to a community's allostatic load. Um, but something like slavery could also definitely contribute to to a, a community's allostatic load. Um, and I mean I think that that sort of concept and that idea i mean it, it builds on a lot of stuff on kind of like poverty traps right that, that we know um where where a hazard interacts with somebody who's vulnerable and you know they, they they get left way worse than they were before and they fall into this you know downward cycle of poverty um this is the sort of physical manifestation of that and um i mean these 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 hazards um be they natural or be they um you know acts of acts of violence and racism um they they take take a toll they take a toll on the economy of people society of people and 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 you know people's physical and mental well-being um so yeah i mean when does a a disaster end i I don't really know when you when you have concepts like this that that kind of draw it out and extend it
0: well you mentioned even going back to to slavery and and fall of last year, I had the opportunity for the first time to go to Whitney Plantation. Miriam, you may know this, and a shout out to my friend Ashley Rogers and all the people that have been working there. And so this is a plantation, those of you who are familiar with it, um, this is not a plantation in Louisiana where they do weddings. This is a plantation where you get the story of, of what it was like to be an enslaved person there. And it cuts against the grain of most of what is sort of plantation tourism in Louisiana. And when you, when you visit there, um, at least my sense of it was, you know, you're right next door to places like Reserve Louisiana. You're in the midder, middle of Cancer Alley. How can you possibly distinguish, pull apart those things, that, that flow of historical time? But, I mean, again, Miriam, you know, to, to you is, you know, thinking about, how you actually turn that knowledge into into more justice when it comes to the really hard work of planning and planning for events that are going to going to happen? How how do we manage those different different timescales? How do, how do you approach that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that you've asked some some questions, but the the good news is that it is possible to do this. Like we are doing. We got fifty seven
0: minutes into the conversation. <laughs> Before anybody said there was good news, i got to do better about that. I'm so sorry.
2: I, no, no, yeah, no. I, I mean, I, yeah. you know, I don't want to make light of the challenge, right? But what I would say is that, you know, with Imagine Waterworks, like, we are addressing these very issues. And I think that there's a few sort of key points, right? One is the importance of organizing direct aid. Um, So part of what Imagine Waterworks has been doing in terms of our COVID response is that we started a mutual aid response network that is um, about 2,400 people. Um, It's operates on Facebook. That's actually how Aaron and I connected in the first place. Hmm. And we are seeing, as we've seen in, disasters, you know, going back (laughs) for many years, the importance of neighbors helping neighbors and the importance of direct aid. So um, I would highlight that as one of the keys to addressing any kinds of, of concurrent disasters is that we need to be thinking about this in terms of mutual aid, right? It's not necessarily focusing on government response, while that is important, it is thinking about how neighbors are going to help neighbors, because those will be the first responders in a disaster. I'm um, thinking about how we can do that in a way that is um, anti-racist, that is focused on those folks that are going to be most impacted. Um, thinking about, you know, we are now transitioning our COVID mutual aid group um, which has been providing things like housing, food, shelter. Um, we are transitioning that now to also be dealing with hurricane season. And that's gonna require some some modifications um, and thinking through it. But the good news is that we can. And I would just offer that, you know, this, these are big challenges, but these are challenges that especially black and indigenous folks, have been grappling with and have been responding to and managing for generations. Um, And so there is a lot of wisdom there within communities of color, within like the folks that are most impacted. And so letting people lead who have that experience is going to get us different results. Um, You know, we can't keep sort of having the same approaches and then expecting things to shift. We really, I think, need to prioritize the folks that are most impacted and allow them to be taking the lead. And it is very possible to do that. And I will say it's possible to do that with almost no resources. (laughs) Like we are seeing, you know, the ability to mobilize large groups of people using things like Facebook, using online organizing strategies, you know. And I think that in addition to the importance of of centering and and elevating, you know, Black and Indigenous folks doing this work, it's also really important to see that we need to have many different perspectives and expertise in the room. So, um, you know, I come from a more traditional emergency management hazard mitigation background, but our work would not be successful if it wasn't for the folks on our team who include, you know, healers and include digital strategists, include folks that have communications backgrounds. Um, You know, we need all of this kind of knowledge. And crucially, it includes, you know, two native New Orleanians who have been through disasters personally. So me as a transplant, you know, I've learned an immense amount. I've learned more, I will say, about disaster management from folks that have gone through it than I ever learned in school. And I had a very good (laughs) education in the subject. So, um, that would just be sort of my my plug for the importance of of local leadership, of community wisdom, when we're trying to deal with these questions that do seem sort of overwhelming at times.
0: And would you describe um, that work as Miriam as as activism? I mean, do do you see that as because that's a word that sometimes I think in emergency management. Um, more, and more generally in professional cultures frankly and I speak for the academy generally mm-hmm. that well we don't you know we might do everything you just said but we don't want to call it activism we're want to step back from that line a, a little bit mm-hmm. and maybe you and you haven't used the phrase either yeah. but I mean is, is it one that you is it one that you embrace is that kind of planning activist?
2: yeah, absolutely I think I, I mean I, I don't sort of see any negative side to um Activism. I think you know the the term that that I think we use more readily is sort of organizing, right? Like there is a lot of organizing culture that infuses our work. Um, I mean, also sort of principles from social work. Like there's many different kinds of of uh, knowledge, but I think that like community organizing is a crucial part of emergency management. And I think that you know if we're doing our job right like if activism means challenging the status quo and pushing for more equitable like outcomes and disasters then like absolutely i think that that is is very much needed.
0: Erin just to bring that over to some of the more professional cultures that that you've studied you know thinking about you know what happens in a municipal state or even in FEMA emergency management you know HQ um we bring those kind of ideas inside there what kind of reaction do you get
1: Yeah I mean this is I mean it's varied right um when when you think about FEMA HQ or these different municipalities um I mean some of them are really trying and and you know thinking in this sort of way thinking about the social construction of risk and trying to make that part of their practice um you know other other others others are not um I mean, I think when you when you look at it from you know you, you move it from individual to organizational you, there 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 are there are maybe maybe some 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 sort of trends um, and i I think I, I've thought about this um you know, kind of comparing my knowledge of the u s system with with you know how things how things work in other countries um and and you know some of some of the some of the developing countries that I've been to um, and I mean within you know, within these, these very kind of generalizations of, of, of of the U S approach compared to, you know, the developing country approach, I, I I do feel like there is, you know, in some ways some lip service paid to a lot of this stuff, right? Like, so FEMA, you know, purports to take this whole community approach and um, you know, there's, there's folks whose job it is to try and engage with the community and and, you know same same with that municipal level and but but if you look at the structures that are there and if you if you look at you know kind of kind of the backgrounds of a lot of these staff and you know how projects are developed um, I, <laughs> there there's a lot that can kind of be 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 desired i guess um, so you know in a lot of developing country contexts you'll have something like you know, a, a community committee that is responsible for disaster risk reduction and risk management that's that, that's comprised of leaders of 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 that community. And I'm using community in kind of, you know, the broad word and it's it's very diverse. Right. Um, so, it'll, you know, there'll be leaders, there may be representatives of, of, of different groups, sometimes marginalized and vulnerable groups. Um and they'll come up with, you know, with 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 ideas, um, and uh, come up with with these general disaster risk reduction and risk management plans, um, and then work with, you know, the governmental authorities to try and turn them into something actionable um, and something that 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 can be funded either by the government um, or, you know, by the cacophony of international NGOs that are that are kind of wandering around and subsuming a lot of government responsibilities. Um, I mean, that model is a ton of faults, right? It places an incredible load on local communities it can. And, um, you know, there's there's no sort of governmental ownership over a lot of this stuff. It's it's abandonment more than it's solidarity. Um, but it also, you know, in some ways offers a model where, you know, you can see through these, I think kind of what Miriam's talking about, these these broader almost community development type initiatives um, You know, you can get you can get representation and you can get, you know, projects that 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 reflect community values and attempt to kind of challenge the status quo. Um, I mean, I think it's it's totally difficult with the professional cultures of of emergency management and, you know, backgrounds in rapid response, um, often fire and police um, rather than. This community development weird mitigation stuff that's needed that's this you know it, that that's a completely different sort of beast and approach um, so things need to change but I yeah I agree that there's models out there that that you know could potentially help help facilitate some of that change and 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 be useful
0: well we're almost up on time I just yeah. want to um, thank both of our guests and just to give you one sort of if you have a final final word or something that you're Um, With sort of forefront of your mind as we go into into hurricane season a trick of the trade or another group we should be watching or somebody you want to amplify Miriam going to start with you
2: sure um I think that to sort of circle back to where our conversation started um you know emergency management as a field when well I'll use the example when I started for working for the city of New Orleans, I was in the mitigation division of Homeland Security for the city. Um, And we were sort of quite literally, we were a three person office that was quite literally like tucked back in like another part of the building, separated from the rest of the the local emergency managers in in Homeland Security. Um, And we brought sort of a different approach to the work. But the culture within emergency management, at least the local level at that point in time, was very heavily influenced by the military, right? There were a lot of folks that were coming out of the military background, but then go into um, emergency management. And that, I think, is changing somewhat. But I recall going with... I went on sort of a ride along with some of these emergency managers that were tasked with doing outreach at the beginning of the season. This was back in 2008. Um, and they were going to uh, do to essentially warn folks uh, in a local nursing home that was um, you know, overwhelmingly black. And these were white emergency managers going in and essentially yelling at the residents in this um senior assisted living facility about the need to be ready for hurricane season and being incredibly, you know, disrespectful, not thinking about the trauma that these people had endured just three years previously with Katrina. Um, just, it was a completely, you know, inappropriate, ineffectual way to do, to do preparedness, to engage with residents. Um, and, This kind of command and control approach, which we're also obviously seeing in police reactions to the protests, is, I think, part of the issue when we think about sort of the culture of emergency management. And if we are going to change, again, the outcomes, that is very possible. It just means also changing the culture. And, you know, I think that what we have seen with Imagine Waterworks is that it is very possible with the right facilitation, with the right leadership to set expectations for, you know, being anti-racist, for considering equity, considering those folks who are most impacted in any kind of disaster management. You know, it's not rocket science. It just takes intention and leadership. And I think that that is what I hope for going forward is that, you know, whether it is in response to the uh, protests and the uprising that we're seeing currently, or whether it's in response to COVID or hurricanes, that really centering the folks that are most impacted and listening um, will get us much further than we've gotten in the past.
0: I have to say, as a historian, I, I tend to focus more on continuity than than change, and I, and I often reject the idea that disasters order some sort of unexpected new world, and yet we are seeing combinations of things um right now that we haven't certainly seen in in my lifetime and it it may open the way for these kind of culture shifts that you're talking about Miriam because certainly what we're seeing right now hasn't hasn't worked in these last three months Aaron I wanted to come to you for the for the last word anything we we missed or anything you want to highlight here as we close out the discussion today
1: no I think I think we covered everything <laughs> um, this tired? was yeah no this was this was um this was great. I, I I came in feeling depressed, and um, you know, I I still feel a bit depressed, but it's it's cathartic to to sort of talk talk through some some of these issues, and um, you know, Miriam, I think uh, listening to you, kind of, you know, at the, outlining some of the solutions here, um, makes me feel a little bit more hopeful. You know, I I, I tend to maybe think a lot about. The negatives and the problems and um you know i'd love to see more and think more about yeah we we, we have these things that can work um you know, how do we how do we get them to work everywhere and you know how do we turn that into something um you know that that Cannot just be picked up by FEMA and used as another tool, but, but can actually lead to some sort of, some sort of real change. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we have kind of, a, kind of a ton of work ahead of us. Um, but, but there is that sort of glimmer of hope there that, that, you know, these, these sorts of changes are possible.
0: I'd like to remind everyone that you've been listening to COVID calls and tomorrow we have the first, of a month of discussions. This will happen once a week with uh, scientists from the Academy of Natural Sciences. Tomorrow we're going to talk about biodiversity and COVID-19. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Please join me tomorrow and every weekday at 5 p.m. for COVID calls. And I want to thank my guests today, Miriam Belvidia, and Aaron Clark Ginsberg, getting us mo- moving into hurricane season, thinking about all of the bad things that can happen, but also I think finding some hope and creativity and solidarity in their as well. Thank you both so much for this conversation today. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll talk to you tomorrow.
2: Take care. Bye-bye.